an offer from an unusual partner. China proposing a deal to fund a nearly $3 billion dam project located in Silicon Valley's largest water district. What's motivating the investment? Plus, land grabs, cyber malware, and spies. A communist threat is operating right under our noses. And it's known as the Chinese Communist Party. Unlike dangers posed by a real war, Beijing's weapon doesn't take the form of a swift invasion, but rather a long-term infiltration. Just how deep does the rabbit hole go? Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Struggling to find investors, a 320-foot-tall dam project in Silicon Valley's largest water district has faced six years of delays. But last week, an unexpected investor came into the picture, China, ready to brave a price tag that has soared to almost $3 billion. What's driving the interest from one of the biggest U.S. rivals? NTD's David Lamb has more from California. California is still in need of water. In Northern California, the Santa Clara Valley Water District plans to build a 320-foot-tall dam and reservoir on Pacheco Creek, located near Highway 152 and Henry Coe State Park. Since 2017, the water district hasn't found other water agencies to fund the $2.8 billion Pacheco expansion. However, an offer came to the table, recently disclosed at a public board meeting. China, basically. Basically. China that, that was, water that was the proposal that it came from uh, a local developer. The Mercury News reported that the Water District's CEO, Rick Callender, said a local developer called him about five months ago and said the Chinese government could pay some or all of the costs. Callender said he wasn't interested and questioned the legality over foreign government investing in Valley Water. Um, international organizations, including international governments, uh, in the project. And I don't believe that um, due to how the funding has uh, come towards us, I don't think that those would be acceptable or legal options that we'd be able to pursue. International? Uh, correct. Somebody from an international, they want to invest and in, uh, make the money off of selling. Uh, that was one of the proposals that was So they make money off of selling the water. Basically. That is correct. Congressman Kevin Kiley said on X, formerly known as Twitter, that China senses an opportunity. Quote, the Chinese Communist Party has previously built dams in Cambodia, Laos, and Pakistan as a way to expand political influence. Jim Beal, board member and former state senator, was concerned he hadn't heard of this proposal. Callender said he didn't know who China's customers would be. Calendar cited concerns that a foreign interest can own the reservoir, sell it, and gain money, saying it's so far from our tax base, it doesn't make sense. The new Pacheco Dam would expand the reservoir capacity by 25 times. But opponents believe the dam will harm the environment and money should go towards more sustainable projects, such as water recycling. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Whoever controls the water controls the future. It's a strategy Beijing seems to be taking note of. It started decades ago when the Chinese Communist Party broke ground on the first of its now over 330 dams across 74 countries. All of that infrastructure helping to expand its global influence. Let's zoom in. Chinese banks are the biggest financers of dam projects globally. About two-thirds of those China-funded projects are located in Asia and Africa. 
Before 2020, Chinese company had added over 8,000 megawatts of hydro capacity in sub-Saharan Africa, more than half the continent's previous total. Beyond that, China also funded a dam in Ecuador. The South American nation is right in America's backyard. The dam is the largest infrastructure project in the country and costs $2.7 billion. Earlier this year, thousands of cracks appear in the dam, threatening the country's largest power source. Zooming back out, why is China building dams overseas? Experts warn through these projects could help communist China extend its overseas power. And coupled with technological advances, cheap labor, and state financial support, that expansion is growing even faster. Most of China's projects are organized under the country's Belt and Road Initiative. The plan is widely seen as a form of debt trap diplomacy in the West, used to bring lesser developed countries under Chinese debt, which Beijing can then leverage to gain rights to the overseas infrastructure it helps build. Dams, farmlands, and America's power grid, all of them appear to be on communist China's radar. There's this transformer uh, was seized by the federal government uh, the year before, 2019. Tommy Waller, the director of state legislative outreach at the Center for Security Policy, sheds light on a would-be electricity crisis traced back to power transformers that were made in China. If this device that we depend on for the lifeblood of our modern civilization uh, was able to be manipulated, if it was able to be turned off, uh, then that could be extremely problematic for us. Transformers are a critical part of our power grids. Without them, electricity can't be delivered to homes and businesses. The U.S. has been purchasing China-made transformers thanks to their low selling prices. But concerns about them are rising. Above all, that China might be able to launch a long-distance attack on the U.S. power grid. Recognizing the risk, in 2020, former President Trump signed an executive order to block utilities from using gear from foreign adversaries, including China and Russia. The Biden administration repealed the rule. And unfortunately, uh, on the first day of the current Biden administration, uh, that executive order was suspended. And so our nation's imported about another 100 transformers from China uh, in the ensuing period. We're now somewhere around 400 in the U.S. grid. Over 400 Chinese-made transformers are currently in operation in the U.S., and some of those just across the river from the Big Apple. A power plant in New Jersey bought a transformer from a Chinese company, JSHP. The plant powers at least 500,000 homes in New York City. The news made headlines in 2020. Looking at an earlier case, a U.S. utility company also bought a Chinese-made transformer, later discovering a component in the gear that shouldn't have been there. It's unclear how the device affects the transformer. A joint force is countering Chinese efforts to buy U.S. land. Over 80 bills from 33 states, lawmakers across the U.S. are aiming to restrict Chinese entities from buying U.S. land. A dozen of them have become law in states like Florida, Alabama, Idaho and Virginia. The measures are facing backlash from some Chinese Americans. They argue the rules could lead to discrimination and hate crimes. Zooming out, Chinese companies or investors own over 380,000 acres of land in the U.S., about twice the size of New York City. It's a relatively small figure, but the key isn't how much land is owned, but where it's owned. And that's causing concerns. Here are some examples. A Chinese corn milling company bought land 20 minutes away from the Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota. 
A former Chinese general also bought land near the largest pilot training base run by the U.S. Air Force. That's in Texas. He controls over 40 percent of all Chinese-owned U.S. land. Smithfield Foods, America's largest pork producer, owns about another third. That's mainly in North Carolina. But Smithfield lost its American identity long ago. A Chinese pork company bought it up in 2013. The bulk of the rest is owned by Walton International Group in Arizona. Walton is a real estate management firm based in the state. Worth noting, Washington doesn't even have the most up-to-date information on how much land Chinese investors control on American soil. The most recent data, 380,000 acres, is from two years ago. The USDA relies on foreign buyers to report land deals on their own by filling out a form. But enforcement has been lax. Lawmakers are pushing for the agency to shift to an electronic filing system. But Congress hasn't approved funding for the transition, so it may take a while. Critics say Chinese influence efforts also go beyond the physical and have taken root in the digital realm. And a major source of it right at our fingertips. That's in the form of a short video sharing app that U.S. lawmakers have called a national security threat. TikTok was launched in 2016. It grew to become America's most downloaded app just two years later. Yet today, the app is facing global restrictions on who can use it. It's a constant threat, and much of that threat is coming um, from outside the country of trying to infiltrate our systems and really impact our data. New York City barred government workers from downloading the app on government-managed devices earlier last month while the White House gave federal agencies 30 days to delete the app in February. In March, a House committee voted to fast-track a bill that would ban TikTok from all devices nationwide. So why all the pressure on TikTok? It all comes down to China, the home base of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance. FBI Director Christopher Wray warned in March that Beijing could use TikTok to control software on millions of devices in America. Does that accusation hold up? Half a year ago, TikTok CEO testified in the House. He stated, The American data has always been stored in Virginia and Singapore in the past. And access of this is on an as-required basis by our engineers globally. Later in May, a Forbes investigation reported that TikTok had been storing U.S. user data on Chinese soil, including critical details like social security numbers and tax IDs for its paid content creators. Under that pressure, TikTok admitted American data had been handled differently. Though it argued creators' data was treated as an exception. I think we need to put all of our options on the table as to how we deal with TikTok, not just because they are collecting and storing surveilled information, but they are failing to tell the truth to America. What's more, Australia's financial review recently revealed that software developers inside China are working on TikTok's code, adding these engineers can access user data and are subject to Beijing's intelligence and security laws. Under the laws, Beijing can force all entities and citizens to cooperate with so-called national intelligence efforts. Has Chinese tech giant Huawei been able to break through U.S. sanctions? That's what many are wondering after the company released a new smartphone model on Wednesday. At the heart of the debate is the device packed with 5G chips made in China. 
because if it does, that would mean China's semiconductor industry has made significant advances. It would also suggest U.S. sanctions against Huawei are losing their teeth. Here's the background. Washington slapped sweeping sanctions on Huawei in 2019. Officials say the company is a Trojan horse for Beijing. That ban means Huawei can't get 5G chips made with U.S. technology. U.S. chipmaker Qualcomm was able to get permission to supply 4G chips to Huawei, but not the 5G. Huawei has kept the release low-key, without any major promotion campaigns, and with no mention of any new microchips on its product page. It also refused to provide details on the phone's specifications. Could your new electric car pose a national security threat? Research has revealed that electric car systems are susceptible to remote hacking by China, with vulnerable parts ranging from microphones to brakes. That's according to Christopher Balding, a surveillance expert and founder of the think tank New Kite Data Labs. NDD's Jane Wirrell spoke to him for details. Hi, Christopher Boulding. It's good to speak with you. Uh, in your recent report, you say China-made electric vehicle batteries are a clear security risk. Why is that? Basically, they have the ability to control and uh, interface with many different parts of the automobile, um, giving them access to lots of sensitive data and the ability to control those different systems. So that gives China uh, a clear ability to do lots of things that, that we might not want them to do over Western automobiles. So you say that it's not just about surveillance, but there's also a risk that the vehicle could be remotely controlled as well. How would that work? Yes, so because the battery or even other systems may contain malicious code, um, this would give uh, Chinese hackers, if they so chose to use that data, the ability not just to listen in uh, or, uh, or use that data in some way for surveillance, but to actually control various systems of the automobile, whether it was the microphone system or even the braking system. Should we be concerned of the Internet of Things? Well, we also know that, uh, that China manufactures a lot of those Internet of Things devices, um, everything from headphones to components that may go into uh, everything from ovens to cars. Um, we know that they collect data on that uh, internally, and so this, this creates absolutely a surveillance and security risk, and especially since a lot of those devices do not have the Internet security that, say, a phone or a computer will make them much more susceptible to hacking. I mean, generally speaking, in terms of electric cars, how much of a security risk are they? Um, I think it's, it's fair to say that it's a, it's, a, it's a reasonably high security risk because Internet of Things and, and cars do not have the regular security updates that, uh, that computers or phones have, and those are uh, quite susceptible to targeted uh, attempts at hacking. So I think it is very fair to say that, that this is absolutely a, a, a relatively high risk. And what can people do to protect themselves from these risks? I think the most obvious would be uh, not buy Chinese-made automobiles. Um, Chinese uh, components are absolutely in um, a large number of cars, both electrical vehicle and gas turbine. Um, but I think it's, it's incumbent to uh, learn more about uh, uh, any electrical vehicle, which probably has uh, a significant amount of Chinese electronic components, um, but definitely not be buying Chinese-made automobiles. Well, Christopher Bolding, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. 
Coming up, what's it like to be the first official Hong Kong asylee in the United States? Francis Hui first got involved in Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement at the age of 14. She witnessed firsthand a once democratic city gradually fall into the hands of a communist regime. From the umbrella movement to a so-called national security law unfolding before her eyes. American thought leaders host Yanya Kalik sat down with Hui to discuss her journey as a young freedom fighter. More on that after the break, here on China in Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Hong Kong will have a generation that doesn't know what's right or wrong. That's the concern from a young pro-democracy activist. Growing up as a witness to the ups and downs of the city, Frances Hui now shares her fears about the Chinese Communist Party and its attempts to influence the public and rewrite history. Hui first gained her political vision when she was 14. Now she lives in exile in the United States. American Thought Leaders host Yania Kellek sat down with Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Francis Hui to discuss the current status quo of the city, as well as her journey to become Hong Kong's first political asylee in America. Frankly, I'm, I'm honored um, to have you on here. Uh, it's I my honor, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, you're the, you're the first official Hong Kong asylee in America. As, as I understand it, which I'm very, very happy that that, that happened, of course. Why, why don't we actually start there? Um, why don't you tell me your story? Because you even started in the pro-democracy movement very early in life, right? And it's kind of an amazing story. Tell me about that. Well, so I was born and raised in Hong Kong. Um, I just, you know, grew up as a normal kid. Um, and I guess I just learned a lot about how you know Hong Kong it's fairly different from China like the rest of China and um, you know grew up learning that we have freedom of speech like judicial independence and rule of law I was actually inspired by you know a bunch of students that went to the street and um, protest against a, a, an education scheme and one of the leader of it is Joshua Wong and so I joined Joshua Wong's um, organization which is called the Scholarism and it's basically all a bunch of students um, rallying on the streets at that time and since then I have always become like an activist uh, for Hong Kong and so it, it kind of dated back to like when I was 14 years old and then I just continued to speak up for political issues in Hong Kong and um, continue to be very active in pro-democracy movement and then later on I came to the United States to study journalism it's a very long story how I became an asylee um, for Hong Kong but um, eventually I was you know, banned by Hong Kong, and and I understand that there are threats um, coming to me um, if I continue to stay in Hong Kong, and so I had to leave um, Hong Kong um, eventually in 2020. Well, first of all, you know, not every 14-year-old is motivated to stand up for their rights. How did that happen? You know, that's an interesting question. Uh, some people ask me, is that because of my family? Like. Is there anything happen that motivate me? But to be honest, like I don't have any background of like growing up in, you know, a family that's like a bunch of, like full of activists or that kind of stuff. My family, it's a normal family, but it's just like 
seeing protests on the streets and um, learning about actually the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre when I was 10, um, it was shocking. Like I remember um, before I was 10, like like for my first 10th years, I thought I'm a Chinese. Like I was proud about like the Beijing Olympics. You know, Hong Kong is part of China, and like we're nothing different from Chinese, uh, like mainland Chiinese. Um, but then learning about the Tiananmen Square massacre was like shocking to me. You know, seeing all these like pictures and videos of bloody bodies getting you know ripped over like by tanks and stuff like that. And there are just students who want democratic change for their country. Like they are truly nation-loving people, and they want freedom for themselves. It's just shocking to know that when I was 10 years old. And so I went to the first, like my first time going to a public rally was actually um, the Tiananmen Square massacre vigil in Hong Kong, which is not no longer a thing anymore in Hong Kong. Um, but it's truly amazing to experience being in the crowd and like surrounded by people who have the same values and chanting same slogan that like we want freedom and democracy we want accountability it's really amazing and um, that opened my eyes to learn that we truly have a privilege in Hong Kong to speak up for ourselves for people who don't get, have the voice you know protesting being able to protest and to rally out on the streets it's it's really a privilege and um, I learn about that and I figure out like I should you know pay more attention to what's happening around me and I realize like the government is trying to integrate us uh, to China um, through education and I would be the first generation to experience um, patriotic education if those educational scheme is passed and and then that's inspired me to went to the streets and eventually joined the first movement with scholarism. So this is really fascinating. I just want to touch on one more thing here. So for many viewers of this show, I believe, they would view patriotic education as something very positive. In fact, there's a lack of it here in this country. That's, how, that's what they would say. And I, I think they would be right to say that. Why did you see patriotic education as a problem? Yeah, um, so it's a little different in China. The scheme that they propose is, is an iteration of, of history. They don't talk about Tiananmen Square Massacre. They don't talk about Cultural Revolution. If they ever talk about it, they would brush off their atrocities and bring positive impacts into what they have done. So like the kind of patriotic educations that Chinese is bringing out to Hong Kongers is you have to speak Mandarin. Um, there is a model answers for the history, which is not true. Um, and also they would tell you it's good that like we are putting Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps. We're just educating them to erase, you know, extremists um, and terrorists. I, I don't think those are accurate um, versions of history that we should learn and it's certainly brainwashing us to believe that oh China is a good country that we should all feel belong to and that's a strange to me. Well so I think I think what I hear you saying right is is basically it's all framing things from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party being this great benevolent entity that, that we should all be and you know, it's above with. all. It's kind of like in religion that you have to believe 
um, there's a model answer that you have to, you know, get a perfect score on your paper. I think that's how it works. And, and that's why we call it brainwashing educations, and it shouldn't, you know, be imposed in Hong Kong. This is in 2012 when we still have pretty good degree of, you know, freedom. And we were able to push the, like, pressure the government to suspend the program. But now it's, it's again, it's implemented in Hong Kong already. There's nothing that we can do. Um, they have already resumed that through the national security educations. And all the students, like high school, middle school, elementary schools, even in universities, um, students have to take those classes in order to graduate. Um, so, you know, it's a huge decline in Hong Kong's um, situation. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at chinainfocusntd.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you soon.